Welcome to the Greener Way podcast, a show about people, planet, and purpose, and how investors and corporate leaders push forward in a complex world. In this episode of The Greener Way, we're speaking with Jack Lattimore. Jack is the Indigenous Affairs Journalist at The Age here in Melbourne. He's a Birapai man with family ties to the Dungeti and Gumanya nations. Later this year, Australian citizens will be asked to vote in a referendum to recognize Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples in the Constitution by establishing an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice. The voice will be an advisory body to, quote, make representations to the Parliament and the Executive Government of the Commonwealth on matters relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, unquote. The vote on voice is being widely debated, and many institutions, including key Australian businesses and investors, have either publicly come out in favor of the vote or are mulling whether to publicly take a stance. I've asked Jack to this episode to discuss how he approaches covering this historic time for the age, how he vets sources within Indigenous communities, and how people can better educate themselves so they consider how to vote later this year. Jack, that was a really long introduction. Thank you so much for being here. Can you introduce yourself, your role and your role as the Indigenous Affairs reporter at the age? It's a pleasure to be here. My, my name is Jack Lattimore. I am the Aboriginal Affairs Journalist at nine newspapers, uh, starting with The Age, and sometimes my work goes beyond into the other newspapers. I'm the first Aboriginal journalist doing Aboriginal affairs reporting there ever, as far as I know. It's great to know. Um, I've been following your coverage of the voice referendum, as well as your wider coverage for years uh, going to your previous employers, Jack. Can you please help us place the vote on voice to parliament in its historical context um, and also in terms of addressing the current barriers for Aboriginal people in Australia? Well, in terms of the voice in its historical context, possibly goes back to, well, it does go back to 2011. But we first heard of uh, constitutional recognition in terms of a voice in around 2015, 2016. Um, and that was a referendum council that was appointed to go around and take the temperature on what Aboriginal people were thinking when they thought about things like constitutional recognition. Um, they had a number of dialogues, uh, regional dialogues around Australia. And from those, um, what the referendum council heard was that people wanted another body that would advise on uh, policies and uh, programs that affect the lives of Aboriginal people, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So yeah, it's got a fairly long sort of provenance there. In 2011, if we want to go back there, you had Julia Gillard around that period appoint uh, an expert panel. Its final report came back in around 2011, 2012. And within that report, um, there was some advocacy, I suppose, is a good way to describe it, for greater representation in the way that uh, the government considers and consults with uh, Aboriginal people. Mm -hmm. So from that point to this point, there's been a hell of a lot that have gone on, and there's been a lot of public-facing reports. Like many people, I'm really working hard to find a wide range of analysis and community leaders to inform myself, both in terms of people who are supporting um, the referendum and those who have valid criticisms of the process itself. How do you weigh and analyze the different perspectives to the voice referendum? And, and how do you bring, you know, your heritage and your experience to bear as you're doing the work uh, of, of speaking to the communities 
on this topic? Yeah, it's a very delicate line to balance along as an Aboriginal person doing Aboriginal affairs Mm -hmm. and specifically around the voice and specifically this year. And increasingly so as we get closer towards um, what we believe will be the referendum date in October. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of sourcing and considering information from community, um, there's a number, I guess it's best to think about it conceptually as a tiered approach. Um, You would probably know some of the names that are strong advocates or prominent advocates Mm -hmm. of the voice and constitutional recognition. And those names, of course, are the ones that generally are attached to the reports. Mm-hmm. So Marcia Langton, Megan Davis, uh, Arnie Pat Anderson, um, Noel Pearson, of course. There's a whole host there. Tom Karma is another one. Tom Mayo has got some books out. He's a younger one that's come through um, and sort of risen to prominence mm-hmm. um, around this voice stuff. Uh, and then over on the other side, in terms of opposition to the voice, you have people like Warren Mundine, uh, Jacinta Price, Lydia Thorpe. Um, there's a number of people. Well, I guess then we're kind of going into the the next tier. Um, there's a lot of people within what has been described as the sovereignty movement, mm-hmm. um, but it is really uh, a lot of different kind of groups or crews uh, that uh, have an issue mm-hmm. with. Uh, constitutional recognition, uh, and that has formed into opposing the voice proposition. And then beyond that, um, if you go just into general community, and this is where I'm mostly interested in, is um, how to talk to people that aren't really politically orientated or inclined, um, how to talk to those people about the voice to get an understanding of their understanding of it, but also what way they're leaning, why, what they feel they lack in terms of information. And yeah, I guess another sort of area is talking to young people as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Down here in Victoria, we have a model for The Voice, I suppose. It's called the First People's Assembly in Victoria. Mm -hmm. And there is an election process that goes towards um, comprising that with a number of members uh, made up of those elected, but also those with reserve seats. Uh, And in that electoral process, we have, I guess, reduced the age of people allowed to vote down to 16 because there is a, we're a young population. So we feel that there should be um, greater participation at an earlier age. uh, And there has been. So yeah, you need to find out what young people think about this because ultimately, um, although a lot of the voices are coming from people in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and sometimes 80s, uh, this proposition is really about leaving a legacy behind that's going to improve the lives of younger people, mm. younger Aboriginal people. I suppose so. Then again, you know, I'd love to dwell in on that a little bit, Jack. And you know, without getting too much sharp and sort of journalist to journalist speak for our listeners, it is something that I again I turn to your coverage for and coverage like in places like uh, in other media outlets. How do you go in and get that authentic voice and you know that balance between you know interrogating where people's views lie and and playing that role in plugging people into information sources when you're in community doing this work. Well, it's a different approach to the way that uh, 
journalism is usually done, mm-hmm. the, the usual routine approach of journalism. Mm. That approach results in a lot of what communities see as rip and run um, type of practices where journalists, predominantly non-Indigenous, will go in, um, talk to people, pretty much um, get what they're after. Like they, they know what journalists know what they're after before they go in and they're looking for that confirmation and some lines to quote. So what happens is they go in, they're talking with people from community. They're not known to, in most cases, they're not known to uh, that community in any way. They haven't introduced themselves properly according to cultural protocol and practice. Um, So what they end up leaving with is generally that confirmation, which is not representative of the actual views uh, from within that community or from uh, even individuals from within that community. And you'll find that quite often with non-Indigenous journalists and people that aren't aware of some of these protocols going into community. That's community does that because they want to avoid conflict. So if they ask a question, sources, doesn't matter you know what age or whatever, they're generally picking up on the response that is uh, desired mm-hmm. from the person asking, mm-hmm. and they will they'll provide that response. Uh, and this results and has always done when the approach has been this kind of rip and run mentality. Doesn't matter whether it's journalism or government policy. Mm-hmm. Um, it will result in you know an inaccurate response, I suppose. And then, of course, um, the problem lies is when people go back to whoever it is, the policy designers or the newspaper editors, and say, "This is what I heard. I heard it from you know the source. I heard it from the grassroots." But what they've heard is exactly what I described a moment ago, um, this kind of appeasing uh, response just to avoid conf- conflict because they don't know this person, trust isn't established. So what I try to do is um, establish relationships uh, before I go into community, and there's a number of ways to do that. The most you know simple one that I advise uh, colleagues that, I work alongside and have trained people in the past is to contact people that are working within the community, whether it be uh, in the health service, uh, on an elders council, basically is looking for somebody to establish uh, just that introductory um, sort of relationship. And then you need to put in some time and develop that relationship and when that person or those persons get to know you and trust you, they'll start introducing you to the people that um, are appropriate to speak with and that have an informed opinion that is representative of community. Unfortunately, you don't see that approach. Um, it's, not a, it's not common. It's not widespread practice within journalism particularly and, and um, policy making as well, and that is why people have proposed this voice idea because it stems from community. It's informed um, according to the model put forward by Langton and Karma, and which was embraced by the Liberal Coalition Party uh, that lost the election in May last year. And it's the model that Labor has stated that it's the preferred model for Labor. So, yeah, and that's informed from the community itself upwards. to this national body proposal, which uh, is representative of those communities and which advises 
uh, government executive in Canberra. I'm really struck by this this rip and run phrase that you've brought up, Jack, because, you know, it, it brings up to me, you know, one of my fa- the foundational books that I go back to so often, um, Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals, um, this idea that you have to be invited into a community if you're not of the community um, and sort of the importance of having that those that permission um, to develop relationships that can then lead to movements for change. Um, so I'm really struck by that. And I think it's one of the things that worries me or concerns me um, as I'm educating myself, as I'm sure listeners to this podcast are as well, that, you know, we're coming in, we're asking questions, but we don't necessarily have those deep relationships um, ourselves with Aboriginal communities. And so it feels inauthentic or we feel like we're missing something here. Yeah. yeah, And I mean, as I said, it's just absolutely common within the um, the news industry or within journalism. Mm. Um, but this, that is just indicative of the actual issue. Mm. when it comes to governance and yeah so there's a there's a useful parallel going on between the the two scenarios it really is isn't it um we're trying to figure out how we how we feel or how we educate ourselves on how to vote for voice and it's uh the, the bigger context is behind it as to how it is we're not talking to each other in a more informed way to begin with yeah and it comes down to uh, just to use that um sort of metaphor or scenario within journalism, it comes down to a different approach. It's something that I've called slow journalism for a while. There was so much emphasis on being fast mm-hmm. and being effective and, you know, everyone's time poor and to get the the essence of the story, um, to get the meat and the mechanics of it and then print and move on to the next. But it's not that. It is developing relationships, establishing trust, having cultural ties almost to the community. Mm. And that takes time. And, but, you know, the flip side of it is that you're getting rewarded with richer stories and um, greater information in terms of um, whether it be the voice or, you know, anything else. Um, You know, if it just, for example, if it might be in the terms of mining or whatever, you're going to hear the issues that community have um, with whatever scenario it is that they're in uh, and get beyond that sort of front of house is one way of describing it, but that front of house response. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it all comes down to time. And again, uh, this voice proposition is essentially that Mm. asking for, for Australian people to develop a meaningful um, relationship and cultural ties with Aboriginal people. That's why the Uluru statement from where the voice stems from was an invitation I like that. And so as we prepare ourselves to take this invitation, potentially, Jack, um, one of the things that's come up, as I said in the beginning, is that, you know, a lot of people I talk to are are trying to find these voices and educate themselves in a way that's that's meaningful um, and sensitive. Um, you know, do you have suggestions as to, you know, credible sources that people should be looking at as they're making up their minds? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And it doesn't matter which way you fall. Got a great story coming out this week, actually. A couple of young guys up in Northern Territory didn't know which way that they were going to vote. They didn't. They weren't politically inclined. Um, one was, a, I think, an electrician who's studying for a teacher's degree, and the other um, describes himself as a storyteller. So they took the initiative and actually drove around the top end to these communities, their own as well as others. Uh, you know, take they knew how to go into community, obviously, um, and they basically wanted to hear from communities and individuals to teach them how to think about it, to educate them on on the voice. So 
I'd be listening to people like that. Mm. It, it doesn't matter if you know they're not these prominent um, authors or um, lawyers or whatever. Like, mm -hmm. It's good to listen to those two. Mm -hmm. We know the people there. We know Megan Davis, who you'll be able to catch on ABC, was one of the early, uh, you know, developers, I suppose, of this voice idea of all the restatement. Very eloquent. Noel Pearson's another who's been around since, you know, talking about this since probably 2011, probably earlier than that. Uh, Marshall Langton. And then, you know, if you're falling the other way, um, it's there are people there to talk to as well. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't go, I wouldn't advise listening to any of the misinformation uh, and disinformation that is being um, preferred. Mm -hmm. But uh, if you go in the community, you will be able to speak with people who, you know, don't have a political agenda. Mm -hmm. They've got genuine concerns about the voice. And in terms of prioritizing issues within those communities above, the voice, mm -hmm. they, you know, legitimately believe that, you know, these things are more important. Mm. So, yeah, I'd be going in um, and talking with those people. There's a lot of um, uh, crazy talk out there. There's a lot of conspiracy theories. Uh, it's always good to educate yourself around where those conspiracy theories come from. A lot of that is imported from America, North America, with the Free Men of the Land movement. Mm. Yeah, I mean, in terms of actual texts, I would recommend, um, well, the, the latest quarterly essay from Megan Davis mm -hmm. is a good primer. Just go straight in. Um, it's very, you know, you probably get through it in two or three hours, so it's convenient to read as well. Um, Henry Reynolds' Truth-Telling, uh, History, Sovereignty, and the Uluru Statement, I found very useful for something I wrote recently on sovereignty. Um, and just in terms of the approach towards writing about um, communities, Aboriginal communities, uh, and establishing trust in the work that you do, mm -hmm. whether, and again, it could be journalism or it could be you know, policy design or whatever. There's a book that comes out of Canada, and obviously with the Aboriginal people over there, they're a lot further down the pathway mm -hmm. than what Australia is. Australia is like it's trodden on a rusty nail or something. Uh, but that book is called Everything You Need to Know About the Uluru no, that's not it. it that's the <laughs> one I was reading off before. Uh, that one is called Elements of Indigenous Style, mm -hmm. a guide for writing by and about Indigenous people. Oh, I love um, a style guide, Jack. I'll definitely get that it one. Is, it is absolutely a style guide, but it's a whole lot more than that. So um, I get them on ebook, and I refer to them uh, and I refer other people to them quite often. At NITV, where I was, we also had a... Uh, you know, a user guide, um, protocol and practices that's floating around on the internet. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's available as well. But, um, yeah, in terms of, um, people to speak about, uh, to listen to speaking about the voice, there are so many books out there at the moment. Um, I would emphasize or encourage to get one that's written by an actual Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people, person. There are a lot of people, um, as you might um, suspect, that have seen an opportunity for personal promotion, let's say, uh, off the back of the voice issues, just like any other piece of um, issue that's mm -hmm. kind of taken center stage on the, the political uh, on the political front. Which brings me to a point I wanted to ask, finish on as well, Jack. Um, 
cultural sensitivity. You referred earlier in our conversation talking about, you know, we're in the pointy end of the conversation now, and this is shaking out issues through this year that are likely only going to intensify as we get closer to October and the putative date of referendum. How how should people be engaging with people in their community of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander um, heritage in a way that is culturally sensitive and not forcing people to carry additional burden to educate people like me? Yeah. Well, I would not be asking or not expecting people to pop up and be advocates for the voice. There's a number of reasons for that. Any given person may fall, you know, may be one of the greatest supporters of it, but not want to speak publicly about it because um, it is such a fraught subject within community. Like it's it's not divisive, but it's causing conflict and tension um, that, you know, people deal with and get past and exist alongside of, um, but it's not something that, you know, everybody wants to leap forth and talk about. Um, they'll be dealing with all of these tensions and things, these tests um, on the various community relationships in their own way. And that is a bit like, you know, NAIDOC week. You get inundated with, um, you know, offers to speak, um, <laughs> let's just say burdened with um, opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, but not everybody, everyone, you know, kind of advocates what is at the core of NAIDOC week, and that's a celebration of achieve- achievement, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander achievement. Um, and a show of um, that you know, we've been around and resilience, but not everybody wants to put on a party hat and blow the whistle. So the same with this, just not to put too much weight on anybody having to come out. There's enough dealing with it. There's enough dealing with the public rhetoric out there, the, the toxic environment that's been created around this topic. An interesting thing, most people remember the um, the atmosphere that was around the same-sex marriage plebiscite, and it did. You know, it was, it was horrible for some people. Mm-hmm. Because Aboriginal people only make up, what, 3%, maybe just over 3% of the Australian population, that has been overlooked too often, that really toxic, harmful, violent environment um, that is current right now. Mm-hmm and perpetuated um, by a lot of the public debate, particularly a lot of the public debate coming or emanating from Canberra. But, yeah, it's overlooked because it only affects you know, 3% of Aboriginal, 3% of the population. But it is, I would say, worse than what it was back there, and it's because um, races entered into the conversation. You have the disinformation that has been peddled by um, uh, political apachiks that, um, you know, using that Orwellian language, mm-hmm. for example, some people are more uh, equal than others. So there's a lot of there's a lot of that out in community, uh, and it's kind of it jumps across out of the voice public conversation into other areas that have to do with Aboriginal affairs. So you'll have, um, for example, um, someone talking about uh, native title rights um, and, and this is just a re- not a political 
mm-hmm. person. Mm-hmm. Um, not a voice advocate completely away from that, but this person who's asserting native title mm-hmm. interests mm-hmm. and public commentary is targeting them um, with really racist stuff that's based on the voice mm-hmm. and the no campaign for the voice. So, yeah, it's pretty uh, it's insidious out there. Mm-hmm. So it's difficult to navigate, and um, Aboriginal people have got enough on their plate um, dealing with that in their lives. They may not want to jump up and be the, um, the advocate in the room every single time they're asked when it comes to the voice. And with that, I think we'll thank you very much, Jack. Jack Lattimore, an Aboriginal affairs journalist at The Age. Thank you so much for sharing your insights uh, for, and for sharing the process of so, slow journalism with us. Thank you so much for having me. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Greener Way podcast. If you like today's show, remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform and make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss an episode. Any feedback? Contact us on podcast at fssustainability.com.au. I'm Rachel Allen Backus. The Greener Way podcast is a product of FS Sustainability, a show about people, the planet, and investing in our collective future. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. The Greener Way podcast gives listeners access to information and educational content provided by discussing numerous financial sustainable options and our featured guests. It is not intended as a substitute for professional, legal, or tax advice. The hosts of The Greener Way are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. FS Sustainability operates under an Australian Financial Service License and the exemption made available under the Corporations Act 2001 in respect to any information or advice given. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the FS Sustainability website, fssustainability.com.au.